Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. And ads per day online and offline. 10,000 per day, up to. 10,000 per day, offline and online. If that's the case, how if you're a company out there marketing and you're like, I don't know, let's just put some ads on Facebook. Like, do you think you're breaking through the clutter? Are you speaking, like when we speak about dogs for a title company, is that breaking through the clutter of the 10,000 ads a day? Or are we gonna say, you're a number one title company in Florida? Like, what, what message is gonna break through the clutter? Because I'm obsessed with breaking through that clutter. You know, I'm gonna send you a book if you don't have it already. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. We've got a friend of the show, Philip Stutz, back on. He's got a new book. Philip, tell us about tell us about the new one. Man, first of all, uh, a lot has uh, changed since the first appearance, which, which was right before the pandemic. So glad that we can come in and make make this the sequel. Yeah, I wrote a book called The Undefeated Marketing System: How to Grow Your Business and Build Your Audience Using the Secret Formula That Elects Presidents. And basically, I've worked for 25 plus years now running political campaigns. And about six years ago, I started helping entrepreneurs, Fortune 200 companies, startups, small businesses sort of translate those principles and how we market presidential campaigns, United States Senate campaigns, governor races, congressional races, and apply those to businesses. And we've given people an unbelievable edge over their competition. And then I just decided I needed to sort of walk, you know, help the larger general public rather than just my clients. And we decided, you know what, we're going to, we're going to tell the whole system of how it works. How do you get a president elected? What are the five steps you have to take? And then how can businesses apply that to exponential success? And, uh, and we prove it. And I will be honest with you, Jess, this is not a textbook. This is a book that tells stories and teaches the lessons and teaches the system through stories. So if you want something that's entertaining and you want to know how the sausage is made in politics and how modern day political campaigns work and how Barack Obama was elected or how Donald Trump was elected or how George W. Bush was elected or how Joe Biden was elected, 
I'm going to walk through all of that. Uh, and then I'm going to tell you about all the companies and businesses out in the world that are applying those same principles and how they've had unbelievable success by that. I love it. How many, how many successful campaigns do you think you've been a part of in your career? Political? Yeah. 1,407. Really? Yes. <laughs> I, I count it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So you, I've been a part of a th- 1,407 election victories, including three presidential wins. That's awesome. You know, what's funny is for not being a very political guy, like, did I tell you on our last one that I started my own political party? Did I tell you about this? I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't think it's, I would remember this. It's called Family Values Independent. You're totally invited <laughs> to join. It's really easy. <laughs> All you have to do is think for yourself. So yeah, um, I'm good on that. So for not being a very political guy, I am fascinated with the science that makes people successful there. You know, it's so fun to have you on last time. Actually, the episode I finished like three minutes before we got started it w- is with a former Bill Clinton speech trader, oh, White House cool. speech trader, wrote this great book called Shortcut about how powerful analogies can be in, in framing things, you know, but let's do this. I, I want to actually go through those five things, but let's start with what's the experience on the second book like compared to the first one? I'm a much better writer. I mean, the first, I wrote a book called Fire Them Now. It's a fine book. I'm very proud of it. And it's called Fire Them Now, The Seven Lies Digital Marketers Sell. And uh, I lay out the lies in the in the marketing industry, right? I kind of wanted to like just go nuclear bomb on the first book and just pick as many fights as possible. I come from politics. Fighting doesn't bother me. So, and and I, it's, it's a good book, man. This book is, I just, is I'm such a better writer and I, and I have, I have a subscriber list and I've written consistently since the first book, every single two weeks, I put out a, a blog that people subscribe to. And then when you just write that much, you just become a better writer. When you're writing almost every single week, you just become better at what you do. So for me, this book is a very entertaining book. And it teaches a very systematic approach to marketing that no marketer in the country is doing right now. Literally, if you own a business and you want to market that business, there is no, your competitors are not utilizing the system. And every company we've worked with that has utilized the system has grown their bottom line, every single one of them. And so, you know, I, I figured the only way to tell that though was through a lot of stories. And that's that's what's the big difference this time around. Well, I, I'm not surprised that kind of consistency has paid off. Maybe for one second, though, let's touch on the new one. I'm, I'm just on philipsnuts.com looking at the Undefeated Marketing Podcast. Tell us, yes. uh, tell us what people can expect there. Yeah, I mean, look, you're going to be able to buy it. You're going to learn the 26 years of my work and you're going to pay, you know, whether it's $6.99 or $12.99 or $24.99 for the Audible version. That's great. I think if you want to go deeper into how we look at this system, then we're going to we're going to dive into sort of each of these steps. We're going to talk to people that are experts in various parts of the system. We've got some really cool guests coming up between James Altucher and this crazy marketer named David Meerman Scott. I actually have Cal Fussman who wrote for Esquire and can tell the power of story. So in a way, like this Bill Clinton speechwriter, that's exactly the kind of guess we're going to have is we're going to you know help business owners dive deeper into this. So you know how this is, give as much content as you possibly can out there and try to teach, teach what you're, you're, you know, ultimately this is kind of my legacy. So I kind of want to teach it and be out there with it. And would you recommend people do the free data assessment before, or do you think reading the book first is better? I think any, any action is good action, right? I think the book is a 
ready, fire, aim, or excuse me, ready, aim, fire approach. I think the anything else would maybe be ready, fire, aim. We, we put together a free data assessment and we'll walk through how important that step one in our whole system is how to, how to look at consumer data or in politics, how do we look at voter data to make sure we devise the right campaign, the right message, the right plan, the right brand before you go out and spend a bunch of money. So for us, step one is always how do you get a deeper dive into your customer? And we, I have a partnership with, if, like on the extreme side, I have a partnership with the largest data collection analytics and AI company in America. In our database, we have 200 million plus Americans, consumers, 550 million connected devices. We're tracking 10 billion with a B, 10 billion online purchasing decisions every day and a trillion searches every day. And so we're able to look at your marketplace or we can overlay your customer base and then match it and model it up against our database and produce these insane reports about everything you ever need to know about your customer or client. It could be B2B or B2C. Actually, can I give you one example of what this is? This is going to be like so weird and out there, but it's great. So we were working for a B, where we is a current client. They're a B2B title company, right? So you want to go close on a house? got to hire a title company, right? They do, like I said, they do a billion dollars annually in, in, in sales and closings. And their market is not sellers or buyers. It is real estate agents because there's no buyer that, that's closing on a house that said, hold on, I got to go shopping for title companies now. Like that doesn't happen 99% of the time. It's uh, real estate agents. And this title company is in Florida, big boom in the real estate uh, real estate market right now. And so when we took all the real estate agents in, in their portfolio and their database, and we overlaid them online. We tracked their movements. We grabbed their IP address. We tracked their movements for a month. We can go into like 90 days in the past, but ultimately we came back and spit out the 75 page report. We can tell you the social media platforms they go to in a chronological order. We can tell you their values in life. We can tell you what they read, what they watch, all these crazy things. When we got theirs back, it said 72% of the real estate agents in their entire market own dogs. Now, how in the would you know that, Jess, if you didn't like track their movements online and know that they were buying dog food, dog toys, subscribing to dogs, you know, subscription services, all that kind of stuff. 72, if you knew before you marketed that some, that you had a, a, you knew something about your marketplace that they did, 72% of them did. That is like an insane goldmine you just uncovered, right? So yeah. Any question, any idea what the national average is for comparison? No. That's okay. a really good question. No, no. 72%. So what did we do? We said, good. Your marketing campaign is not about, hey, we're the greatest title company in America. Like, okay, everybody's saying that. No, we're going to brand you as the dog-loving title company. So dogs run around the office freely. We've got dogs in our ads. The dogs were creating bio pages for the owner and his dog. There's a picture of the owner of the company with his whole family on the picture on their website with the dogs in there. Everything is about the dog. The ads that we run are about the dogs, right? And they've grown exponentially. Like, like of course, part of that's market force, but part of that is also every real estate agent comes in their office right now and says, I just love that you guys love dogs. I can't, you can't tell you the company, the owner calls me all the time. It's like, this is totally insane. Not in a million years that I think I'd be marketing a title company around dogs, yet we hear about the dogs every single day from our from our client, from our clients, which are the real estate agents. And so, so, so to get real quick, to get back to your data assessment, that's what I'm trying to figure out. 
we created a free tool for anybody that wants to get a deeper dive into their market. It could be a modeled audience. It could be the regular customer client list they already have. We can put a pixel on somebody's website, on a company's website, track the people that come there and then follow those people around. But that's how we do it. But the assessment is a free assessment to kind of give you an idea of how you should be looking at your customer or client. I love it. You know, my first question there is, how do you make the judgment call on, you know, like these ideas of correlation versus causation and, and, mm. you know, like they all drive a car as well, but you didn't, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But you didn't like become yeah. a car marketing company to sell your title insurance. And like, do you know, like people, people can sit around boardroom tables. I may or may not be speaking from experience here <laughs> I talk them into really stupid stuff that doesn't actually pan out. Right. And yet there's a reason that even though cars don't wear clothes, Fashion Week is sponsored by Mercedes Benz and Mercedes Benz Fashion Week has been a great branding opportunity for them. And, you know, watches are, you know, like if anybody ignores watches, it's probably golfers. And I'm sure Rolex still sponsors the PGA. Right. So my question for you is. When you think through this idea of, let's say I do the data thing, we find some insight, like, let's say I want to, I'm targeting people who join CEO clubs or entrepreneur clubs, like entrepreneurs organization or YPO or Mm -hmm. strategic coach. That's who I think we're going to sell our passive real estate investment Mm -hmm. to. Right. And I find out, oh yeah, there's a massive over, over representation in X. When it comes Mm -hmm. to then sorting through like, yeah, but is that really the leverage point or are they actually passionate about it? Like does talking about that have any kind of a brand lift to, like even if we win the even if we win the like place in their mind for that does that give them any sort of reason to care about us for buying real estate investments you know like yeah you sort through that decision tree can you give us some guidance yeah so first is i've spent 25 years interpreting data so i can see what exactly what you're talking about like so many people like we'll see We'll see in the data, it'll say they, your customer, your, the vast majority of your customers work out every day and they're, you know, they, they value fitness, right? And it's not, I go, oh no, I would not interpret that as we need to go and start advertising at Gold's Gym because these people work out. I would say that the way I would read between the lines is these people like certainty and these people like routine, And so what you have to do is develop a message and a strategy, sorry, that addresses that, that you have to, you know, you need to know what makes your customers tick, you know, so too often the business owner is out there running around, or even the marketer is out there running around and screaming, we have a great product, we have a great product, we have a great service, buy our product or service. But what if the customer doesn't give two shits about that? Like what I'm trying to figure is what does the customer think? How does the customer live? Often we find, so we can track whether the customer or client, we track three factors. What, what is the their main reasons for buying things? Retail purchases, regular purchases, any purchases. Is it price? Is it quality? Or is it convenience? And when I say convenience, I, I call it like a reduction of friction to transactions. So for like that's really important on e-commerce. Because if you have an e-commerce site and it takes you eight steps to go check out and buy the thing, you're screwed, right? So that that's what we try. And so we often find that price is the number one issue. But I often tell the business owner, reading through the data, price is just the block in their head. It's actually not the reason. They're not going and looking for discounts everywhere. They're looking, they want quality, but you've got to break through that block in their head that is price. So yesterday we were working with, we're working, we were going through a data report with a 
international company that's bringing refrigerators and washer dryers into the American marketplace. And they want to do it in e-commerce. And they wanted to like launch out into the U.S. this fall. And so we were going through this data with them. And price in their market that we were looking at for them was number one. They're like, oh, okay, we got uh, we got to discount everything. I go, no, you don't. You have a warranty program. And warranty says that we'll come fix this for the next 20 years no cost. You also have energy efficient products. So they're going to actually, if you just tell the customer how much they're going to save per year, then all of a sudden you've melted away the price block. And the first thing that comes into their head is what's the quality of the product? So you need to be selling to the quality. The offer needs to be nuanced in a way that removes the price block from their head. And that's what the data says. Like we wouldn't have known that had we not spent four weeks diving deep into their customer base and understanding how we need to market to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. I also really appreciate that kind of lateral thinking idea of like, you know, price is the block. I feel like this, sometimes the way a question gets phrased almost kind of like paints us into a corner and what the answer must be. Hey, if price is the block, then automatically the answer is discounts. No, do some lateral thinking. Do you know what I mean? Like, we can we can agree we can agree that price is the block without just automatically dragging the solution with it which i love yours of like you know like my favorite thing for sales is like can you can you get it so that the like the the perceived like the perceived value versus price is completely out of whack where they feel like oh my this is so much cheaper than the value right like where the customer comes to conclusion the, the price and price and value are totally out of whack in my favor. Like right. not only do they buy it quickly, they tell their friends to, you know, like all these people who are like, Oh no, that's, that's the right price. It's fairly priced. It's like, that's not going to get word of mouth fairly priced. Right. That's the opinion people have. Right. And not only that things change, like customers, clients, their, their purchasing reasoning changes all the time. Let me give you an example. So we work with a national pest control company and they came to us and they, they came to us uh, about three or four years ago and they said, my God, we've just lost uh, $2 million in market share after spending $1.8 million on our marketing campaign. And we don't know why. And I said, well, what, what are you marketing? And they said, discounts. That we literally 4X the company on the backs of the Great Recession in the late 2010s all the way until about 2016 screaming discounts on everything. And it quadrupled the company. And then all of a sudden it stopped working. And so by 2018, they're like, we've got it. Something's got to change. We're, we're in deep trouble. So it came to us and we overlaid, this is obviously before the pandemic, when it get to the pandemic, how, what happened during the pandemic, but we overlaid their customer data online. And we found out that their customers were over 50. Most of them had kids out of the household they had disposable income. They were, they were making over $75,000 a year. So they were a higher level of purchaser that they saw discounts on the backs of the great, uh, great economy before, you know, after the great recession, that discounts looked as cheap and untrustworthy that they were like, why? I don't want to, I want to buy something that makes me feel safe and, and I can be proud of. Right. So when these people were, were literally spending $1.8 million to lose $2 million in market share because they just decided to stay with what they had always stayed with and the market had changed and they didn't know and they didn't know what was going on. So that's like what happened. So what did we do? We started, we changed their, their funnel and they started bundling services. So uh, termites and pests at the same time. Well, that bundled. Now the consumer's like, well, I'm smart. I can bundle. We made the consumer smart and, and took away the price block. Does that make sense? 
So then the pandemic hit. Well, guess what? Those same people that wanted to feel smart and buy green products and and didn't want discounts, they changed. So in March of last year, everything shifted back to discounts because what we found in our data was that people were only buying for needs, not want. You know, before the pandemic, it was I want a car, I want a vacation, I want a watch. You know, it was I want anything, right? After in those first few weeks of the pandemic, it was like, do I need this? And so we had to pri- we had to message this particular pest control company like, well, yeah, you know, we, we'll come to your home. We'll wear masks. We'll wear, you know, gloves. We'll make sure you're safe. We won't spray around your dogs. And by the way, if you sign up right now, we'll give you a 15% discount. You can't, you know, you don't need to cut your pest control budget in a pandemic because you need to get pests out of your home because you're quarantining, all that. And I think the results ended up being like a 5.3x on return on, on ad spend. And it was one of their highest generated sale, uh, sales campaigns they'd ever had. But it wasn't because of anything we did. We just looked and saw what the customer wanted and appealed to the customer in that moment because things had shifted. And that's my whole point. We live in a world right now, Jess, where everything is changing every five minutes. And unless you're understanding what's in the heads and the brains of those customers, those clients, you're putting yourself at risk. You can't just go around and guess a sales pitch anymore. You can't just go around and guess a marketing campaign anymore. It's too sophisticated. There are too many people using a scientific approach to all of this. They've got an edge on you. And so if unless you're willing to play the game and step up and go, no, I've got to take a systematic approach as well, you're going to be left behind. And because the, this is the craziest stat I'm going to tell you today. I, I, this one's going to blow you away. Jonah Berger wrote a book called Contagious. He teaches the Wharton School of Business. You know, you know who Jonah is? Okay. He has a stat that says that we are seeing right now up to 10,000 ads per day online and offline. 10,000 per day, up to 10,000 per day, offline and online. If that's the case, how if you're a company out there marketing and you're like, I don't know, let's just put some ads on Facebook. Like, do you think you're breaking through the clutter? Are you speaking like when we speak about dogs for a title company, is that breaking through the clutter of the 10,000 ads a day? Or are we going to say you're a number one title company in Florida? Like what, what message is going to break through the clutter? Because I'm obsessed with breaking through that clutter. You know, I'm going to send you a book if you don't have it already. One of my favorite guests I've ever had about that subject. Do you know this guy, Brendan Kane? He wrote um, Zero to a Million, and then his new book's called Hook Point. He used to work for uh, Lakeshore Entertainment, you know, big, big Hollywood company. And his job was like, how do I get 100 million people to hear about this movie in like 100 days, right? Cool. And so I'm very, all right, you got to tell me this. This is good. Yeah. So then he just, he just really, he really focused on like, hey, you know, like we don't live in the information age. We live in the information overload age, right? Right. So being good, having good content is like table six. Like that, that's how you get in the league. That's not how you win the championship. Right. Man, and so he's like, how, he's mind. like, what is this hook point? Like, how can you grab people by the throat in the first three seconds? So they don't scroll past you. So you can buy, so you can buy another 10 seconds to talk them into why they should give you the next three minutes or the next three hours or whatever it is that you want. Right. And he just has, he just has really become a specialist in it. And so he he went over to Katie Kirk when she left cable TV and went to Yahoo and nobody's watching. And he just figured out how to do the right kind of A-B testing on Facebook for these headlines and thumbnails and views that were getting hardly, you know, videos that were getting hardly any views. She, he got into the millions and then he ramped up Taylor Swift's social media kind of before she was a big deal and Rihanna. And, and he just is so thorough about the reason I want to send you the book is because you don't need it. 
because you sound exactly like him. Okay. No, but because I he's still like, love to read that. Because I'd like, be reading it screaming yes the whole time. Yeah. But he just says that is exactly the question that he says. He's like, hey, listen, there's like 60 billion posts a day being put out Correct. there. What is so special about yours that it deserves to cut through the noise? Yeah. And like start holding yourself to a higher standard of like it's you versus 60 billion. Like that's you, right. Really? Like give me be your own lawyer and tell me why this is going to break through. And you know what I mean? Like when you start when you start taking like that level of intensity about it, you actually have a shot. And then he says, and still don't trust yourself. Like work really hard to come up with it. And then variations. And then quit think quit arrogantly thinking that you know and go test. And it's like test, 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 test. And uh, I I think I got to write another book because I feel like so many of the smartest people that I get to interview on this show have like similar messages. And one of them is arrogance and set it and forget it are not ways to make a lot of money. The humility to listen to like, and not just listen for confirming evidence, but like to genuinely listen, like set aside biases, set aside what you want the answer to be and genuinely listen. And then to like yield what you think the answer is and just give them what they actually want is the way to money, which sounds like absurdly simple. So it seems like we probably all know that. Why aren't we all doing it? But like when you talk about all this this data that you get, I'm like, this is, here it is once again. What's that? Your method is like that same yeah. message again. Yeah. I don't care what you think is going to work. I want you, I want to get some data and actually listen before we make the decision. Totally. And not only that, like this guy did it in entertainment. I've done it in politics. I've done it at the highest level of politics, right? And this is exactly, if we think about this, Jess, if I don't listen and follow what the voter wants, I'll lose every election. The voter is the main point of who I'm working for. I'm not working for a politician. I'm working for the voter. Now, I want to find alignment between what the the candidate believes and where the voter also believes at such a high degree that they'd be convinced to vote for that candidate. Right. So that's what I'm trying to figure out with the data. And I call that step one. And like step two is now you got to write a strategic plan over it. Like you have never started a business and not had a strategic plan for your own business, right? Who would do that? Well, you should shot 99% of business owners don't have a marketing plan. They just go out and just start spending money on things because they've been told to do that. So I'm like, no, you got to be strategic. You got to find the alignment between what the business wants and what they want to talk about and the alignment with what the customer also cares about within your business. And then for three is you got to build your brand, right? So this is the third step of our system. Too many people start with their brand first. Why would I spend a dollar of a business owner or a politician's money, a dollar of their money, and send them to a brand that doesn't resonate with the voter or the customer or the client? Why would I do that? That makes no sense. It's so ignorant and it's such a waste of money and it's such an easy uh, money grab for a marketer. Be like, let's start with the brand. Well, how the how do you know what the customer wants? I think CopyWare's got a stat out there right now that says if if a uh, you know a consumer has one bad experience on your website, I think eighty eight percent will never come back again. Man, it makes sense. Have you like seen some ad? You clicked on it, went to the website, it's sort of clunky. Maybe it had some foreign language on it. And you're like, oh no 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 no, and you clicked at it, right? Like we've all done this. And so I'm not sending somebody to a brand or a website unless I know it's going to resonate with them. That's the whole key to your brand. 
It's not a guess. It's not sit around a table and have a nice brainstorm session on how cool you are. Like that's what everybody just gets wrong, right? So the fourth step for us is exactly what you just said. Now that we know what the data says, now that we have a plan in place, now that we've built the brand, we're going to go test those messages. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So I please know this. I am not talking right versus left. I'm not talking policy. I'm talking how these campaigns are run. In 2016, Donald Trump's guy, that the guy that was running uh, the marketing for Donald Trump, he told me that they would run one message on Facebook 162 different ways. They have a red background, a green background, a man in the ad, a woman in the ad. They have different font sizes for the message. They do whatever. They have the font and the, the, the text in the right corner, the text in the left corner. Like they did 162 variations of one ad. One, that's, that's testing. And then what happened? Eight or nine of those ads, they had no idea why blew through the roof. They had no idea. It was like putting lighter fluid on organically. They would do this organically just to see what would get through. Now they know where to go spend their money, which is what we call our fifth step. Like, let's launch. Let's launch the campaign. Now that we know it's going to work, now that we know how to resonate with our with our voter or our customer, let's go launch. So that's our, our five-step system. And the testing part of that is incredibly helpful. Like It has to be done. And it has to be done at a low cost. Like I think the difference between me and probably most marketers are, I think the testing should be done at as low a cost as possible. I don't think you need to spend big to test. I think you spend small to test to figure out where you go spend big once you know what you need to do. And as an investor, Jess, as you can see, every step of this process is eliminating the risk of the business owner. Every single step eliminates the business owner's risk. That's what I'm obsessed with as well. And most marketers are like, well, let's just go try and see if it works. Well, that doesn't work for most business owners. And so the system is a risk elimination and the ability to grow your bottom line every single time. You know, I'm I'm interested because I know you're such a student of the game. You know, Obama is who he is now, but when he first showed up on the scene, nobody knew who he was. Did he do some of these things or why do you think he, he got in when he got in? Yeah, every political candidate has followed this since 2004. So George, I was, I ran the national get out the vote campaign for George W. Bush in 2004. And we, I saw this thing get implemented for the first time ever. And I talk about this in the book. And then Obama took our model and added social media to it. And then he, he kind of, you know, we had better targeting in 2012. So he just did it and did it better again in 2012. And then Trump took our data model from 2004, took Obama's social media model, and then married it with branding, which was make America great again. Again, I don't care if you hate the guy or love the guy. That's not my point. My point is he ran a brilliant marketing campaign. And then in 2020, Biden did something even crazier, right? He did all these things, but he, he didn't have a brand. His brand was don't let, let Trump bury himself. That was basically his job. And the data said that. The data said if you if you pick a fight with Trump, well, first of all, we historically you pick a fight with Trump, you're going to lose. He will wear people down and grind them down to to nothing. Like that's what he does with everybody. He did it in business. He did it with Hillary. He did it. He did it. So the Biden people knew don't engage. And if you don't engage, the only place he can go is out to the media to fight them. And he is going to exhaust everybody. And so the data told I mean told everybody that we saw in politics that. If Trump was just out there exhausting everybody, it didn't matter that he brought to life the, the, the fastest vaccine in the history of the world to market. The fact is they didn't even see that. They, they actually voted against his coronavirus response because he never stopped talking about it. And it wore people down. And Biden just hid in his basement. And that's a fact. They knew that. 
That's why he was hiding. They didn't want to engage Trump. They let Trump bury himself. And that was what they did. That's what the data said. That's what they followed. They followed these steps. And ultimately, his message was to bring order uh, to the chaos, to end the chaos and, and bring order and calm to everything. And that's what ultimately the, the coronavirus response was, was Trump's Achilles heel. And then the, the clincher was bring sort of calm to chaos. That's interesting. So actually, I want to take a tangent for a minute. Did you grow up in Florida? No, I grew up in Where'd Alabama. You grow up? Okay. How do you think the way that you grew up helped you in what you've done with your career? Mm. Whether that's location or family or experiences or anything about how you grew um, up that helped you do what you do. I, the only thing I can think of is sort of the entrepreneurial side, which was, and I don't know if this is Alabama geographically related. I just, I was the first generation of ADD kids. I wasn't HDAAD or whatever it was. I was ADD. There wasn't hyperactive activity disorder. It was just attention deficit disorder. And like I was on Ritalin in the 80s, right? Like I was literally the first generation. And so I was put in dumb classes, like the dumb kid class, like literally bordering on special ed. They told me I was not smart my whole life public school system didn't fit my brain. And I was a failure at pretty much everything. I was a DNF student. Like, isn't this like the story of like every entrepreneur? And so I, I think the way I was brought up was I dealt with failure almost on a daily basis. And I had to, I had to learn how to deal with failure at an early age. It was not particularly enjoyable. There were suicidal moments in those times. But as an entrepreneur, you know, this is the other thing about the difference between politics and business. In business, we fail all the time and we go, oh, feedback. I just failed at something. That's feedback. I, I, I can recalibrate. I can readjust. I can try something new. In politics, you make one mistake. It's the end of your career in some instances, right? So it's just kind of a fascinating aside. But for me, I think growing up, I, you know, I, I tend to be more libertarian in my political thinking, but I also... I did not see racism in Alabama growing up. I grew up with a very open mind. And then when I moved to Washington, D.C., I felt like I was, even though I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, I felt like I was prepared to live in a big city and I was not overwhelmed by that. So maybe that's the only geographic thing. I think I think there's a stereotype that everybody from Alabama is cousins and racist. And, and we all carry pitchforks and yell Trump in the air. I just didn't grow up that way. I grew up in a household that embraced anybody and everybody for whatever they were. And it's sort of why I'm, I'm more libertarian, because I just think it, I'm not going to judge you no matter what. I just kind of libertarian in my thinking. Interesting. Okay. Well, I've got the most interesting answers to that question. So, and so, no, no, I just well, want to hear what was the most interesting, you know, one of them early on in the show is a, is a guy, Randy Reyes. He's a, a startup CEO. And he talked about moving back and forth from the States to Lebanon mm -hmm. and like going to his friend's houses while there's bombs going off Jesus. and people are shooting AK-47s in town, you know? And, and he's like, it's not as dramatic as you think. He's like, you can get used to anything. Like you, you like you figure out you like, you kind of have a sense of what's happening and when you can, and when you can't. And yeah, you have to talk your mom into letting you go, but right. like you eventually get sick of staying at home and you just want to go to your friend's house. <laughs> and it's like, it's like the pandemic in a way. <laughs> right. 
but he just the way he talked about dealing with uncertainty and like how he's handled being a startup and and just like knowing his stuff and handling things and and just dealing with reality instead of whining yeah. about it and it was it was sometimes when people tell stories like that there's a lot of like look at me look at me and how special I am and there was none of that it was just very factual very matter of fact and it was really insightful I, I like felt like I got this like little glimpse into what that was like for him because he was so straightforward about it instead of contaminating it with exaggerations you know yeah that was one of them but there's there's been others you know i, I want to do this let's go back to the book can you give us the five pillars the five principles all in a row just to summarize as yeah. a summary yeah so the first step is we do a deep dive into your customer data before we do anything else so i mean even uh, look you can follow these steps you do not have to hire me or work with me. that's not the point but I won't work with anybody that doesn't do a deep dive into their client or customer data, because if I want your success more than you do, that's just leading to failure, right? That's how committed I am to this. Like the, the data is so good. It's so important. It's so mind blowing, whether you, you know, and what we do, but you, there are other ways to do it that don't cost anything, right? You can do survey monkeys. You can look at Facebook analytics. You can look at Google analytics. There's ways to look at data and come up with an understanding of the way you need to be marketing uh, your client. And those don't cost anything. We walk through all that in the book, but you got to do a deep understanding. The second thing is you have to build a strategic plan. The strategic plan really has a fundamental principle marry and get in alignment between what the vision is of the business and the business owner and the customer. That's it. That's the the alignment of that. Those two things. If you can do that, that's the gold because the business owner doesn't want to be talking about a product that like maybe the customer likes, but has gives the business owner no passion to talk about. And at the same time, if the business owner is talking all passionately about something the customer doesn't want, that's a fail recipe for failure. So you got to find that alignment. You got to build that plan. The third step is it's time to, now that you know what the data says, now that you know the alignment between the business owner and the and the customer or client, you got to build the brand. You know, one thing we continuously, I'm telling you 90% of businesses don't lead with video right now which drives me insane on their brand. Like you go to their website and there's no story. Or here's a, here's a really here's a really good small tip. If your company's website doesn't have a team page that shows the humans that work in your company, you are saying I I can't tell you how many times I go to a website of somebody that, you know, we're we're looking at and they don't have any you have no idea who works in that company. Like for me that's not a real company. Like for me, it's like they're trying to hide something. You've got to put, you know, you've got to make it human. We're seeing right now something like between 40 and 80% of all customers are regularly watching documentaries. This goes back to your original point, Jess. It's not like, hey, let's go create a documentary for this company. No, you need to put a, do a documentary style 60 second video on your on your webpage about who you are, why you started the company. By the way, everything needs to revolve around what the customer wants because you find that in the data. It's a very scripted video, but they're going to watch the video. In fact, Google and HubSpot came out with a stat that says right now, seven in 10 B2B buyers watch a video sometime in the sales process. If you knew that 70% of your market was going to watch a video sometime in the sales process, why wouldn't you create a video? But they go, oh my God, video is so expensive. And I'm like, the people that don't invest in their brand drives me nuts because that's ultimately how you build trust. It just is, right? And I keep going back to trust is the key to everything right now. The, the fourth step for us is now that we've got 
the data, the plan, and the brand in place, we're going to go test messages and send people to your website. It's not necessarily for a conversion. It's trying to see what message resonates the most, which one pops the most, which one's going to give you like the most clicks. It's like a, a low-cost way of understanding the metrics of the of the ad campaign. And then once you figure out, oh my, these two ads work like crazy, then you launch your campaign. On the testing side, I'll give you an example. So we worked with a uh, a nine-figure supplement company. And I have this thing I do. Uh, I wrote a whole chapter in both books, both of my books on how to go negative on your competition like we do in politics. But in business, I, I, I use the word going negative and it turned off all these business owners. I'm like, oh, it works in politics. So then I just coined the term comparatizing. So it's like comparative advertising. But how do you compare what you do in a way that offends no customer, none, like what, and draws a distinction and breaks through the clutter, like you said in the book you re recommended, right? So for this particular company, uh, supplement company, we found out that 81% of their market did not like uh, soda. So I went, well, there you go. We're going after the soda industry. So we ran 11 test ads based on the data. The number two performing test ad was a vegan vegetarian ad. We found out 50% of the market was vegan vegetarian of their market. And so that was the number two. The number one performing test ad that we ran for this company was the anti-soda ad. And if I'm just comparing it to the vegan vegetarian ad, not the other ads we ran, just the second place finish. It had a 2x click through, 2x higher click through rate and 20% higher conversion rate. Why? Well, first of all, we tested it, right? And the test, this is what we found. But why did it do it? Because we, you're, you have to draw a distinction. There are three ways right now, more than anything else, you if you want to draw distinctions that are cutting through all the all the clutter, right? Humor is absolutely crushing right now. Comparatizing, comparative advertising ads are crushing right now. And the other is a trust type ad, like a five-star review ad. Those crush right now too. Those are the three messages. If you if I can give you anybody a real quick tip. Those three messages are blowing through the roof right now. And so what we found, we work with a major apparel brand right now. And the two ads that are blowing through are the comparatizing ads and the five-star review ads. They're just crushing everything we're doing right now. So it's funny that you brought this up because this was a question I had for you. Because you said you're in politics and you don't mind a fight, right? No, I, and... I don't mind taking a baseball bat to someone's head. I think <laughs> I meant to say that. Yeah. So I hate conflict. I hate conflict, but, you know, we were talking about Ryan Holiday in his book, uh, mm -hmm. Perennial Seller, which I'd love to hear what principles of his stood out most to you. And let's make sure to cover that. But, you know, you look at his book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, right? I mean, go poke an eye in the media world, <laughs> you know, like, hey, you know, he basically reveals like how many journalists don't do any research. They just copy and paste stuff from some other blog and assume somebody else did the research. And, and he goes through how he like literally manipulated the system to get, you know, when he was running marketing in American Apparel, like he did the hacks that he would do to take advantage of kind of the lack of professionalism of a number of journalists, right? And people lost their mind. And the head of Forbes like sent a picture of himself throwing Ryan's book in the trash to Ryan. And, you know, the guy who runs Haro Help a Reporter Out, like really took issue and really tried to come after Ryan and whatever, right? And the thing is what Ryan was saying is actually true. And, and you know, since then has had how many best-selling books and he obviously survived it, right? So I look at this and I'm like, I became a millionaire two different times in my 20s and lost it all both times because of speculation and became like a really hardcore Warren Buffett devotee, right? 
and compound interest investing. And so like right now, the the speculative nature of Bitcoin, like mm-hmm. I am sure that there are people who understand the utility and understand quite a bit more about what's going on and not going on. They're just not the people who talk to me. The people who talk to me talk about Bitcoin like it's a religion, right? right. Yeah. In general, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some exceptions. Same with me, yeah. Uh, and the thing is like, I've read, I don't know, six or 7,000 page of Warren Buffett books. I've flown to his his investor shareholder meeting in Omaha. I've taken courses by him. I've written courses that I teach other CEOs from him. Like there's people smarter than me, but I, I know more than a lot of folks about his methodology, right? And he is constantly quoting history on so many times when these type of activities happen. Again, his mentors, Ben Graham, Phil Fisher, yeah. Charlie Munger's partner, his, his right. protégés, Bruce Flatt at $500 billion in Brookfield or, or Howard Marks, you know, like this exact scenario we're going through has played out many, many times in other scenarios where people who don't know what they're doing feel left out, their friends call them. You know, my my wife's friend keeps calling her because her $6,000 turned into $48,000 and you should do it too. And her sister works at a bank and they heard that Goldman's going to put this much more in. I mean, it's just like, you know, this idea that people have a crystal ball, you know, I know I'm on a tangent, but this is my soapbox. Okay. Bitcoin does not have an intrinsic value. It does not have a cash flow stream to say that the current price of Bitcoin is above or below its intrinsic value, Right. And so it's purely, it's purely a reflection of people's emotions about it. That's why a while ago it was 17,000 and then it went back down to 8,000 and some of these kind of things, right? And so I have like a real bone to pick with people who are promoting speculation or in some cases straight out gambling under the disguise of investment because it's so personally painful to me. I could have retired two different times in my 20s. Hence the reason... I studied Warren Buffett for 10 years and I'm buying commercial real estate this time, okay, Mm -hmm. without high debt. But at the same time, lots of people love it. So I know I could get attention by going after it, but there's lots of people that love it. And do I really need to go jump on their dreams or can I just let history do what it does every time and they'll learn the lesson the hard way? Anyways. No, you should jump on it because when when the history lesson is learned, you're going to be the expert that predicted it. You know, and then that's going to drive people to go, yeah, I should. That guy lost money twice in his 20s. I just lost money now. He knows exactly what he's talking about. I should have listened to that guy to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, uh, just like have a thick skin and know some people are going to hate me and just be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Who gives a damn? You don't know these people. I mean, (laughs) I don't engage with idiots on social media. Like, what? Who? I'm going to take time away. From being an entrepreneur, running multiple businesses, spending time with my eight-year-old daughter and my wife to worry about somebody that doesn't know me, that's not has no context, has never studied my philosophy in life, and doesn't know what I stand for. But just because I took a position, they're going to come after me? Screw them. Yeah. Actually, as soon as you say that, I think about kind of my business hero here, Warren Buffett, and he doesn't go after people personally. But he has not been kind to Mm -hmm. the hedge fund industry, Mm -hmm. to the active management industry, to, you know, like he will continually bring up facts that are that are not very helpful to those guys raising money. And I'm money, sure right? he made a lot of hay when when the GameStop stuff happened and the hedge funds got caught with their pants down. And it's going to be like, yeah, Warren's right again. But the only reason he's right again is because he put the opinion out there. Well, and I mean, he's the guy who just hammers like, hey, there's a reason most of us feel intimidated about investing. It's because the high priests of finance need to come up with complicated language, even though things could be described simply. 
if they described them simply, maybe you wouldn't feel compelled to pay them such high fees, you know? And so there, there's like intentional complexity built in so that you have to take their word for it, right? What had happened if Warren Buffett had just invested and never told anybody? What would you have Honestly, wanted? his reputation- I know, but I'm saying like- Would be you, fine. You wanna, I'm talking but, about you being out public with things like that. Like you, the only way- to change is you kind of kind of have to put stuff out there now you got to be what you're probably turned off on is that like holds his phone up in front of his face and turns the video on and says hey let me tell you about the bitcoin you know and then it's like and then he puts it up on linkedin and you're like i cannot stand these people right and you're probably so turned off by that type of hype and yeah well, i'm so annoyed i'm so yeah. annoyed that I'm so annoyed that my friends, that many of my friends have been influenced by it. Right. That's, that's what it's like. It's yeah. I'll, I'll leave my soapbox alone, but that's helpful to me to realize like, okay, how, how can I compare it to, I have an idea if you want to go ahead. Do you want to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Now I have to give uh, a guy named Tucker Max, you know who Tucker Max is. Yeah. I've had him on the show a couple of times. I like, Oh, have you? Okay. Tucker is a a good buddy of mine. We had dinner last week and, uh, and we were having this conversation and uh, he said, what happens when the global finance community realizes that Bitcoin or crypto is going to overtake their power, that they're going to come down on it and eliminate it? And I went, you could definitely see that. The next day, there's an article that comes out that says from Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel is saying governments need to come in and regulate crypto and Bitcoin. And I'm like, holy crap. Like, you want to take the price down? You want everybody to lose their money? Have the governments come in and try to control everything. And that's the risk. They don't even know it's coming. All these hypers, they don't know it's coming. And and so my point is, is like, ooh, there's one little angle that you could predict that may probably happen in the next five years. Because here's the thing. This is why Donald Trump I put aside his tweets and all the stuff. He was a massive threat to the whole system. He just was. And the reason that they never stopped was, yes, he said a lot of dumb things. I get that. I'm not disputing that. But the fact is, is that he was a massive threat to the power structure around the, around the country, around the world. He's a, a threat to the media infrastructure. He's a threat to, to government institutions and people that work in those institutions. He upset that apple cart massively and and in ways that would never made, have been made public whether that's how he looked at the state department how he made decisions he made decisions i know this because friends of mine worked in the white house of saying wait that doesn't make sense we're not doing that anymore and all of a sudden he literally just tossed over that apple cart that has been sitting there and people have just been tending to it for 50 years that right or wrong thoughtful or not thoughtful that's really how he did it and you're trying to tell me that crypto bitcoin is not upsetting the power structure i don't care that goldman's buying into it governments aren't buying into it and so what are they going to do to hold, hold hold and protect their power that could be the idea you should think about <laughs> yeah so what i where that really fits in and we don't have we don't have to stay on this topic yeah. for much longer but for me i bitcoin may end up being the exception and gets adopted as the world currency absolutely because, you know, I don't know if you saw last week, China came out with their first digital only, you know, first country to come out with a digital only currency. And this right? is why Peter Thiel is like, we got to get a hold of this because China's using it to manipulate us. Yeah. So my point is, I'm not saying it couldn't be different this time, but somebody gets rich from the lottery like every week. Do you know what I mean? Like lots of people, yeah. like people, people make a lot of money gambling. I'm not saying you can't make a lot of money. What I'm saying is 
if you look for maybe like the last three, 400 years, you know, since whenever the East India Trading Company issued stock, right? If you look at a high probability route to having the type of retirement you're looking for or ever being able to retire, gambling can absolutely do that. Winning a lottery can do that for you. But buying lottery tickets is a low probability way to come up with that, right? So on this spectrum from gambling way over here to, to like an absolutely sure thing on the other side, right? Warren Buffett will teach you for free. He's been exceedingly generous in a very high probability model. And it's just the problem is it's not exciting. He says like the, the cost of it is you don't get the thrill like you do when you gamble or speculate. And so it's hard for people to want to do that. And it's incredibly hard for people to not go with the lemmings of it's really hard for people to go like, that's stupid. And their friends make more money. And then they say, that's still stupid. And it makes more money. And then they say, oh, that's still stupid. And then their friend makes so much money. They're like, finally, I guess I was wrong. I should get in. <laughs> <laughs> right as the whole thing topples over. And then on the way down, they go like, oh my, I should get out of this while I can still get a dollar. Like this is going to go to zero. The sky is falling. I guess I should get something for it. And they sell out at the bottom, <laughs> right? And it's that like going with the herd hurts. Right. Anyways, this has been helpful to me because I guess I well, feel like same, I have the same approach I take in, in marketing. It's literally the same thing. The whole book is about how do you do this in a way that's systematic and boring but produces results versus, oh my God, Facebook, you should be advertising on Facebook. Did you know Instagram has stories? We should put something up on stories. I had a guy selling organic toothpaste that wanted us to go to TikTok. And I said, why do you want to go to TikTok? Oh, because it's TikTok. And I'm like, no one wants to buy your organic toothpaste on TikTok. Like it's just not happening. And he, and we went and he, we said, but we'll look at the data. We overlaid his customer data and it was something like 1% of his market was on TikTok. One. Like why? But yeah, there's a chance you could sell some stuff on TikTok, but it, these people that are just playing, you know how it is. You're taking a, literally everything I'm talking about is how you look at investing. It's a systematic approach. It's a step-by-step -step, eliminate the risk, put yourself in the best high probability to win, Right. Yeah. And I realize a lot of it is born from pain, right? Like mm. realizing I could have been retired 15 years ago. Sure. Right. And like how much more stuff I could have done for my charity child rescue or whatever. Mm -hmm. Had I been following Warren Buffett instead of, you know, the Bitcoin mania of 15 years ago, right? The the gambling private the gambling private equity investments that were more like venture capital than private equity, the, yeah. you know, like these kind of things. And I go, well, hey, we're partnered with this $50 billion company. Right. And we've got these millionaires that co-invested too. I'm sure they've done their due diligence. This must be great. And and not, I mean, in that case, it was not confirming that there was controls in place that the CEO actually had to spend the money the way he said he did. Mm -hmm. And we essentially had no repercussions when he did his capital allocations different than what mm -hmm. he promised us, right? Instead of installing one unit and becoming profitable, he started seven projects, none of which he gave profitable because he didn't have enough money to finish them, right? But anyways, I didn't buy, a I didn't buy an existing cash flow stream and I could have. Anyways, let's let's go for a, another one here that's interesting for me is when you think about principles for cutting through the noise. What are what are some of the ones that have been helpful for you? Well, I mean, I, I would let's just stick with what I talked about just a few minutes ago. So let me give you we work with a big apparel company. When we were in this testing phase, we were we like a few of these concepts. Like I said, we did. We've done a lot of humor. It works. 
you you gotta evoke emotion. The only way to find out how to evoke emotion is to understand what the customer or client really wants, right? So it goes back to this whole data thing. But with the apparel company, we decided to test a five-star review ad, which we took a legitimate five-star review of their product, of their clothing, and then plastered it on an ad. And then we also tested, we found out that they were a high-end t-shirt and sweat company, this apparel company. And they, and the data, we found out that the vast majority of their customers hated like cheap gym wear, like cheap sweats and cheap gym shorts and cheap stuff like that. So I went, oh, perfect. I know who are, who we're going to go after. Like, and by the way, what I'm about to tell you doesn't offend anybody. So I said, well, we're going to go after the, the big shoemaker. So we ran an ad called don't buy your clothes from a shoe company. And then the tagline was just don't do it. Okay. Are you offended by that, Jess? <laughs> I'm not. No, you're sure. laughing. Right. No one's offended by nope. this, right? But we <laughs> yeah. shot, we didn't, we grouped them all together. It could have been Under Armour. It's obviously Nike. It could be Adidas. It could be whatever, right? That was the number one performing ad we ever ran for this company for men. Men blew through the roof on that ad. Women didn't. Okay. So what worked for women? It was the five-star review. It was that they, what we found after enough ad testing with, with women was they needed to see our ads or they needed to get about five to six steps into the funnel. Like you said earlier, they needed to see an ad, they needed to click through it. They needed to read reviews. They needed to like, they, 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 they were just as shocking as this may sound. Women are more thoughtful than men. Men were impulse purchasers. Women were thoughtful buyers. And so the five-star review made them say, oh, someone else thinks their stuff is great. So I need to review this and look into this more. And that's the number one ad we ever ran for women. So breaking through the clutter, women need trust, men need excitement. That would be a very generalized way to look at it. But that's what we've seen across the board. So uh, I'm, you know, I feel like this is great. I get these like free consulting sessions. I love this podcast. Okay. <laughs> so my next piece of my next piece of free advice I'm looking for from you is we really feel like there's a big opportunity in helping math and investing seem less intimidating to successful women. Just my own cousins, my friends, business partners, people who, you know, if she had a negative experience with math in school, she, very often she has not spent a lot of time diving into investments in adulthood, even though she's become really professionally successful and she's taken somebody else's advice but she there's been a lot of like the high priests of finance that have invited her to feel dumb and she's accepted that invitation sometimes of like yep. i just don't understand that stuff when really the warren buffett way is extremely simple he calls it simple we can we can illustrate it so my question is thinking about appealing to that market of helping them helping them to feel confident helping them to feel like they can trust themselves on knowing what are the things that are going to give me a high probability or a low probability any thoughts with that kind of a campaign yeah i mean i Again, what would be super cool is to under, is to overlay, like look at that particular demographic. It's not even overlay. You could probably just build a model audience out of it. And what you would find is it's kind of it goes back to what you said. It's like all the things like what are they reading? What are their activities? What what these types of leaders, female leaders, do they work out all the time? Do they take uh, extra cor courses? Do they have children in the household? Like knowing all of these factors then helps you devise a plan that 
would be would resonate and make them come into that so let's just call it that funnel for you it could be oh wow 72 percent of these people have of these female leaders are married or have kids in the household so i need to talk about how it how learning how to invest and learning you know all these things is imperative to helping your family be have a successful family or creating a stable life it's not just being a leader of a company it's how you invest as well. And then utilizing other female leaders who have worked under you that say, Jess Larson, his program changed my life. I hated math. Now I love it. Math, math Made Simple by Jess was the greatest program I have ever worked with. As a female leader, every, every woman should stand up and, and take this program and get smarter. And we get smarter in two hours, get smarter in 30 minutes, because you'll probably learn that time is a huge factor for these people, because for these leaders, because they're trying to juggle family and marriage and business. And it's like, oh, you want to add math onto my thing? The one thing I'm terrible at, I don't want to do that. So you probably, I've done enough data to now kind of break this down. I'm, I'm processing yeah. out loud, by the way, but I'm like, oh, okay. So you got to keep, make it as simple as humanly possible. And you got to have validators and you got to show trust. And you also have to show the reward. What What is the ultimate reward for them if they do it? You know, that's such a good point. Like I think about the more qualitative, you know, the one-on-ones I've had about this, where I'm meeting with a friend or a client, she's self-made entrepreneur, maybe doing kind of single digit millions, right? Right. And, and has a lot of anxiety about something changes and their business blows away with the wind. And now they have to start over and getting to this point and they don't want to ever start over. Right. And like, when I go through like just simple principles about like how there's, there is genuinely passive commercial real estate investing where you don't even have to be a landlord. You can buy into a fund or a REIT or these kind of things. And, you know, with just a few, with just a few checks on, on what's their, their track record and how, how in debt are they? And some of these things, there's actually like a potentially like relatively reliable income stream to add to maybe whatever else they're doing in their financial portfolio. And, and I just ask questions about like, well, how much would you want to have in like, no matter what income in passive income that, you know, like, I know you met you're a millionaire now, but like, is it, if you even had a hundred grand a year, you knew I've got a hundred grand a year for the rest of my life. Well, Look at, you know, you don't have to buy my stuff. Look at BlackRock or, or sorry, look at Blackstone or Starwood. Look at their non-traded REITs that are paying 5%. Well, t- if you, like you're making $2 million a year in profit. If you just took one year's profit and had it in product like that, that paid 5%, there's a hundred grand a year for the rest of your life, the rest of your kids' lives. And, you know, if this thing doesn't appreciate, it's not a guarantee, right? And it's not like I'm like their financial advisor, but just like some simple principles of feeling like, oh, I don't have to wait till I sell a business for 20 million to feel like I've I've locked in financial security for the rest of my life, right? Or 30 million or 40 million, right? Which yeah. is what the startup community has told them. Like, you'll never be, mm-hmm. you'll never really be safe until you exit, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. the You said something earlier that's really good. Most people don't make change until the pain is too big. So you were highly speculative, speculative in your 20s and you went through a lot of pain. And then that made you change to be more risk averse. Fair? Yeah. So that's how you got to frame it. You got to help them see the pain. Yeah. I mean, the thing that scares me the worst for them is they're good at what they do. Maybe they will sell it for 20, 30, 40, 50 million, but they have not spent those same years learning how to handle their own cash. And they're just going to take somebody's word for it, what they should do with most of it. And, you know, a lot of financial advisors are just doing what the bank told them, which is very often not what Warren Buffett would have told them, you know, and so they're going to get less results than they could have. 
Well, let's do this. I know we're winding down here. Another question that I'm interested in is we talked about Ryan Holiday and his book, Perennial Seller, and, and how it guided you in deciding what to write about. Can you give me some more specifics on that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, people ask me, like I, I did a call on Sunday with an ESPN personality who's writing a book. And he's like, what advice do you have for me? And I said, go buy Perennial Seller. And he's like, yeah, but I'm writing a book on sports statistics and data. I got, doesn't matter. He really lays out a few things. He lays out how you should frame the book. So both of my books are framed out in the way that you can read the books in 10 years and they're still relevant. And I, I really appreciate that. Look, when you're writing a marketing book, I could have gone down a rabbit hole of how to buy, buy Facebook ads in my first book. It would have been totally by the time the from the time I wrote it to the time the book came out, Facebook had changed their whole systems and their whole algorithm and the way that you could buy ads or, or target ads. It completely changed. It would have been irrelevant when the book came out. And had I not read Perennial Seller and understood that I need to write a, a book that talks about the larger principles. And then you adjust the, you know, the execution is just done based on how the market looks and how you adjust to the markets in the way they are today, then I probably would have written a really crappy book. So I kind of looked at both books as how do I want to write something that the principles stay the same no matter how long, how old the book is. The other is how important marketing is to the book. And, uh, you know, Seth Godin, you know, Seth Godin is. Of course. Yeah. So Seth, I get his daily email, but he had a, a, I mean, a podcast a couple of months ago, but it was basically, you should spend three years working on the marketing plan before you send it, put out a book. And I put out a book in 2018 and had no marketing plan. The book launched and I actually launched it on Fox News. But here's the great news. You think, oh, wow, you know, how many book sales? I got three book sales. Three. I was on national TV. Three. But then I went on like James Altucher's podcast. I sold 250 books, right? But that was six months later. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I learned for the last three years before this book came out how I need to properly market a book. And so Ryan walks through all the different ways that you can market your book and how to build your funnel and how it all feeds into each other. And I thought that was extremely important. So kind of combining, you know, Mark, the perennial seller is kind of broken up into three sections. One is how do you write a book that lasts a lifetime? One of the ones on the marketing side. I, I can't remember the third part, actually, but those things really stuck out for me. I love those. It's fun for me to talk to other people who've read the same books as me and see what they got out of it versus right. I got out of it. Um, What'd you get? So out? I, I mean, like this. I think the things that stuck out to me the most that's like seared into my brain is you better be deeply practical or wildly entertaining mm. and preferably both. Mm -hmm. And, and this idea of like, just again, kind of challenging myself, like, yeah. is this thing, how practical, how usable is this? Like, does this solve a specific problem or is this just me talking, yeah. you know? Then wildly entertaining, like, do you know how boring I can make investing sound? Like I can, you know, especially if you start adding in the acronyms, do you know yeah, what I mean? And what, what was the DCF on that? You know, how does the DCF affect your IRR? You know what I mean? And like for investment nerds, they're like, well, the discounted cash flow is where all of your internal rate of return is going to come from. <laughs> but everybody else is like, what are the, you know, like a lot of people, anyways. So when he says it better be wildly entertaining, I think about like, yeah, what are the books that I refer all the time to folks? And, you know, like I read a lot of like spy books and and mm -hmm. like nonfiction, former CIA agents or mm -hmm. FBI counterintelligence and people. And like the FBI. Wildly entertaining. Well, the, 
I got to tell you, they're not all wildly really? entertaining. But I look at just the unparalleled success from that genre that Chris Voss got with Never Split the Difference. Okay. And such a good book, right? So not only that, and, hold on. I, that's one of the best books ever written. I've read it three times now. And he, I was with him in Vegas last week, along with Tucker. Oh, really? But I'm obsessed with Chris Voss. I just think he, you know, I mean, obviously he took FBI negotiating into business negotiating. I, I think that there's a similarity in the way I, I, I'm not his level, but how I take political marketing and corporate marketing, I think that's why I'm kind of obsessed with his model. So one of my close mentors who I was talking to yesterday, he he used to work with Chris at the FBI, okay? And this guy is like, I, I call I consider him the most influential person I've ever met in my life. Wow. His, his nickname is Llama. People called him, he, he's very private, he doesn't want me to share too much. But it, he was FBI SWAT for a dozen years before he went, did uh-huh. the no- negotiator thing and went counter intel. And I know other FBI agents who feel like lives were saved because they got in a lot of gunfights, which most FBI agents don't do. But he got more calm when the bullets started flying. Yeah. And there's a different different FBI agent who tells me that like for sure injuries were prevented and he thinks deaths because of the calming influence this guy had. And his nickname rhymes with the with the Dalai Lama. Okay. And it's because of this effect he has. And I look at because I've been we, you know, I've been advising him and he's been thinking thinking about writing a book too and stuff. And to me, like what never split the difference does that's incredibly effective is it's like an action-packed thrill ride. I mean, like mm-hmm. it is it is as good as any Vince Flynn or Tom Clancy or Jason Bourne book for the like, and then we weren't sure if the guys were going to shoot us or not. And <laughs> whatever, right? And then he like subtly sneaks in this like absurdly yeah. practical, like absurdly practical and usable for a regular human principle. And it was like 90% entertainment and then 10% just like straight to the jugular practicality. That's one, I, I really admire that book. So- the other honest answer is this is the other book I'd base my book on. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm telling wildly entertaining political campaign stories, presidential campaign stories. And then I round it back into the practical lesson. So I what you can do in your business. That's great. My editor I made my editor read Never Split the Difference. And oh, really? I was like, if you don't feel like I'm hitting the mark like he did, then you need to tell me. And so she was like, Oh wow, okay. And that was what we base it on. So I swear to God. So interesting to see well, that. Okay. Important question. Is the Audible edition coming out yes. on the release date? Yep. It August is 20th. day. I mean, August 20th. Okay. April 20th. Yes. Release date. Okay. I'm looking forward to listening to it. I'll get it. Oh, that's awesome. And you got to let me know what you think. You're probably saying you're no Chris Voss. <laughs> Not even. But it really uh, is. Uh, it's Ryan Holiday's perennial seller. And then Chris Voss has never split the difference with the two books that I was fascinated by that I said, if I'm going to write a great book, this these are my models. I love it. Well, listen, I know, I know uh, you've got to get on to other things. What do you want to leave us with today? Yeah, man, look, I've got, like I said, the free data assessment. I'm obsessed with data. So if this is something that you're like, wow, I, I, I need to understand my customer client better. We do have a free data assessment. It's at philipstutz.com slash insights. Jess, I sure assume you'll put that in show notes. You can also obviously buy the book anywhere, including Audible. And I have a blog that you can subscribe to. And I talk a lot about the data stuff there. And then I've got the Undefeated Marketing Podcast. So there there are the places. I think I've sold enough. I love it. Well, we'll write another book and come back on the show. Jess, thanks, man. (laughs) Bye, everyone.